A blueprint of desire. Kiss the inside of my thighs, my stomach, my face. Press your lips hard each time. Leave moist imprints on my body. Do not slobber. If you are hungry, graze my neck, suckle my breasts. Feast on ripe fruit I laid bare for you to eat. Don't just taste me. Consume me. Rain in your teeth. Do not bite too hard. Invite your fingers to dance upon my crown jewel. If you get lost, I will show you the way to hidden treasure. Keep a steady rhythm. Learn to multitask. Kiss me. I want to know your mouth. Get acquainted with your tongue. Speak a nonverbal language of lust with your lips. Put your hands all over my body, not just the places you were taught to yearn. Stroke my waist. Cut my hips. Grip my thighs. Do not pull my hair. Do not touch my head. Do not choke me. Every so often, press your face against mine and whisper, "Does this feel good?" Make sure I am damp with longing, not just spit and lube before you slip inside. Slow, steady, then faster. Dance to a rhythm of shared pleasure. Do not hit the hallway of an empty home you cannot move into. Do not slam into me. Thrust to make me moan. Can you make me moan? This must be your never-ending goal. Love my body the way it deserves to be loved, and I will do the same. That was Lurkana Chong, a second-generation Cambodian-American writer based in Oakland, California. You can read more of her writing at lampshadeonherhead.blog. Now, before we get into this episode, we are having a giveaway. We have two fully loaded period kits full of reusable cotton pads and diva cups from Luna Pads, a kick-ass woman-owned social enterprise based in beautiful British Columbia. This diva cup is so special, I brought in my good friend Caitlin to talk about it. Here's Caitlin on the phone. I have a story about me in a bridesmaid dress and a wedding that wasn't yours. <laughs> that was not fun. <laughs> it was like my heaviest flow for that ceremony and I was already a little intoxicated, which made it more difficult. And it came a little bit unexpected. But thank God I had it because I certainly didn't have anywhere to carry tampons. And so I was able to deal with it. So minimal panic and emergency. So there you go, folks. The Diva Cup from Luna Pads will definitely save your bridesmaid's dress, maybe your wedding dress. And certainly it'll save you from having to talk about that time you had a period spill at your best friend's wedding while delivering your maid of honor speech. And as a bonus, here it is due to popular demand, her Diva Cup song. All you have to do to win one of these Diva Cups and its matching gift basket, valued at more than $100, is like Sample Space on Facebook and reshare the post about this three-part series. If you can't wait to get your hands on the Diva Cup, enter New Media at the checkout for 15% off all of your lunapads.com purchases. This is Sample Space by Here Media. I'm Diana Wong, and this is Mine to Own, the third and final episode of our three-part special on periods, pussies, and power, Asian American women and our sexuality. If you haven't heard the first and second parts, I really encourage you to go back and listen to them. When we first started this journey, we had one question. What do we, as Asian American women, stand to gain by embracing our sexuality? In part one, we heard stories that suggested self-love is what we gain. 
In part two, we heard that pleasure, autonomy, confidence, freedom, and narrative is what we lose by not embracing our sexuality. So if that's true, let's hear from women who have embraced their sexuality and what it has meant for them. When I first started thinking about who would have a story to tell on embracing their sexuality as an Asian American woman, I was at a complete loss. Luckily, I found Lucy, a second-generation Vietnamese-American who embodies that embrace in many ways. Act 1. Acceptance. I am Lucy Sweetkill. A lot of people call me Mistress Lucy. And I am a bicoastal San Francisco, New York dominatrix that is based in New York. So when I moved to New York, I was dating someone who revealed to me that he watched a lot of BDSM kinky porn. And I was like, well, interesting. Show me. So he actually showed me kink.com. He showed me all this stuff. And so I looked at all this, you know, porn and I was like, oh, fascinating. Didn't find it weird. I was just more fascinated by it. Up until this point, Lucy had never considered bondage, discipline, dominance and submission, or sadomasochism. Sure, she had an inclination towards biting. And yes, she was a regular at the Folsom Street Fair, an annual San Francisco tradition celebrating leather in all its carnal applications. But she certainly didn't consider herself kinky. And then I met this woman at a bar, and I was waiting for some friends. She came up to me because she needed room at the bar, and we just started talking, just like chit-chatting. And she was by herself as well, and I wasn't really sure why she was there. We chit-chatted, and she was like, oh, what do you do? I was like, I work in fashion. She was like, yeah, you're really well-dressed. So it was just very casual conversation. And I was like, oh, so what do you do? And she was like, I'm a dominatrix. I was like, oh. What, what do you mean? <laughs> and she explained a little, but she was like, you know, I think you would be a really good dominatrix. And I was like, why? And I was like, what does that mean? And she was like, you're here in this bar by yourself. And there are men hitting on you and you don't seem to have any issues. You have a lot of confidence. And you don't seem intimidated by the other beautiful women around here that type of confidence is the type of confidence you need to be a dominatrix. And I was like, well, I have a full-time job, so <laughs> thanks, bud. <laughs> and she gave me her card. And it was interesting because her card had nothing but a phone number on it. It was black, and it just had a phone number. And it was very mysterious. But I left it there because I was like, what am I going to do with this, right? So I left it. I just left it at the bar. And after that, because of the person I was dating and we were actually doing some kinky stuff together sexually, because he was like, you know, I really like it if you like choked me while we had sex and like all this stuff. I started to look into it. I found an ad that was like looking for Asian dominatrix, will train, pays well, all this stuff. And I was like, well, I'm Asian. <laughs> And I'm interested, so I contacted them very hesitantly and wasn't sure what I was going to get back. And I did a lot of research. The Asian straight-A student in me did a lot of research. Read articles about BDSM, got books, all this stuff. So did research, and I was like, I am intrigued 
very intrigued. And so I was super scared because I got an email asking for some photos. And then I got an email saying, hey, I can speak with you at this date and time, which was evening. Text me and I'll give you the address. And what Lucy did next was, I think, what most women would do when met with a text message of the address for her nighttime interview in response to a BDSM dominatrix role. So I told a friend, I'm like, I'm supposed to go over here. You do not hear from me in the next hour. Please come find me, (laughs) you know? And it was scary because the place was like not clean building, like kind of scary building. Go into the elevator, get off the elevator, and it's this like little entrance corridor with a gate if you pass the gate, there's like another little entrance. So there's a gate, another little entrance way where you see the door. And I'm telling you, like, when you get off the elevator, it was like maybe a five feet by five feet room. That That's all. So you get off, you see a camera, and there's a buzzer with a sign that says buzz. So I press it, and then I hear an intercom going, hi. And I'm like, hey, it's Lucy. And they're like, okay, cool, come on in. So it's a girl's voice, but I'm like, I see no one. And I'm being buzzed into a gate into a secret door, you know? So the gate opens, I close it, I open the door, and it's all dark and red lights. And I'm like, uh. And then she comes out. She was the headmistress, and we go into one of the rooms. And then we talked, and she was like, this is the deal. And then I asked a few questions, and then I started. And I had a full-time job, so I was doing it nights and weekends. And it was for my own exploration, so it wasn't like I needed the money. I mean, the money was good, but I didn't need the money. And I did that for a while before I fully left my other career and job and was a dominatrix full-time. So that's how I became a dominatrix. Since then, Lucy has built a successful career as a dominatrix, exploring her and her client's sexuality and desires. And like most of you, I wanted to hear her exploits. So I asked about the most embarrassing encounter in her job. And she said she had none. Lucy rarely feels embarrassed, which I think is part of being the dominant. So instead, I asked her about the funniest thing she's had happen. One client who loved to be scared, I one time like came in, tied him up, and just was having a really sweet conversation with him. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to be back. And then came back and brought in a Hello Kitty baseball bat, pink metal. And I was like, let's see if we can find something to hit. And I like hit the the bar under him he thought that I was really gonna whack him in the balls with this baseball bat which is ridiculous but there happened to be a metal bar under him that I don't think he realized and I knew it was there and I hit it in the metal on metal sound he got so scared he passed out (laughs) and I didn't even touch him (laughs) he just kind of like crumpled on the ground and I just like slapped him and woke him up and he was like oh my god and I was like I didn't even do anything to you and I was just laughing and he was like that was the scariest moment of my life and then he was like 
Thank you. <laughs> Let's take a pause here. In this interlude of Diana keeping it real, one does not just casually become a dominatrix just because a boyfriend likes kinky porn and a stranger at a bar tells you you've got chops. If I had a penny for every time I've heard that one, well, I'd be making more money at bars than I do podcasting. So where did Lucy's journey to embracing her sexuality begin? Can you tell me about your first love? My first love, um, his name is Kevin. And he was actually my best friend. I was in love with him, but he was my best friend. And I didn't really know how to say it because I was 13. And I didn't think he liked me because I was a tomboy. So I didn't really know how to act like a girl, actually. I love hearing that Lucy didn't know how to act like a girl, partly because I was a huge tomboy myself, but also because Lucy had shown me a photo of her in high school, and she really meant it. She had short electric pink hair and a clunky jean vest with her favorite punk band's album sewn onto the back. Naturally, she's staring down the camera, looking tough, while everyone else is smiling. Anyway, back to Kevin. So I was in love with him for pretty much like two years. And of course, when you're in high school and in love with your best friend, only one thing is destined to happen. And he was actually in love with my female best friend. And he asked if I would help him romance her. And of course, because I loved him so dearly and he was my best friend, I said yes. And so I would write love notes for him to her with his name <laughs> and leave them in her locker and and when she was like, I don't know how I feel about him. I never thought about that. I would talk him up for her while inside dying. <laughs> so the love notes, the gifts, the whispering in her ear about how great he was because I thought he was great <laughs> and that they would be a great couple. And so they did start dating freshman year of high school. And so Lucy backed off because it was too hard to see Kevin, the love of her life at that point, and her other best friend be together. That is, until, well, her two best friends called her out on avoiding them. So she rejoined their group and went back to hanging out at Kevin's house, when one fateful night... We made out, Kevin and I, and he cheated on her, my female best friend, with me. So there was obviously this mix of emotion. Like, I can't believe this is happening, finally, but I am a horrible, horrible person. <laughs> and we sort of had this semi-affair for a few weeks, and I told him, like, we need to tell her I can't do this anymore. I can't be in this place where you guys are together at school and all this stuff. And I'm this hidden person and I, I can't be in this position. And so we finally told her and it broke our friendship, of course. And it eventually ended with Kevin and I actually being together. That's how we ended up in a relationship. But despite the circumstances, being with Kevin was actually the best thing ever. I had so much love that I wasn't very used to. My household 
was very broken, especially at the time. It was a very tumultuous relationship that I had with my sister, with my mom. There was not this typical idea of love in my household, you know, hugging, kissing, any of that. And so to feel that from someone, it was like a drug. And he was so loving. He was so loving. His family was so loving. I loved being at his home. It was the home I thought that it was made up on TV with sitcoms, right? His mom and dad were amazing together. His sister was super sweet. She looked up to him. He was her hero. They had a dog. They cooked as a family. They talked about things openly. They debated. They had arguments. You know, his mother was just so loving. It was so foreign to me. And that amount of love being around that was intoxicating. In Kevin and his family, Lucy found what she had never been offered at home. Acceptance. My mom, she was a hard, hard woman, you know, because nothing I did was good enough, you know, and and that's the dragon lady, Vietnamese mom, tiger mom persona, right? The straight A's, the working for her, helping her with her business, everything I did was for her all the time and to make her happy and to please her and nothing I did was ever good enough and it was so exhausting. And even at school, Lucy wasn't accepted. I went to a school where there was like two Asian people and like one black person. This is my junior high and high school. And it was intense. It was the first time I dealt with racism. And, you know, I tried to fit in for, I think, the first maybe six months I moved there. And then I just embraced my weirdness. And I hung out with all the other punk rock kids. And he was one of them. And like, and we just embraced being different because we weren't going to fit in. And for me, I wasn't going to fit in because I was the Asian girl. So at school, it was the other kids. And at home, it was Lucy's mom that left Lucy wanting love and approval and a space to be herself, to be good enough. But with Kevin, she found all of that. He was love and acceptance all bundled up into one green-haired punk rocker. We were just two people, and I had been in love with him for so long. And he cared about me so much. We were best friends. We were boyfriend and girlfriends. We were inseparable. Everything was perfect. And Kevin was a safe place for Lucy to be herself. We explored each other's bodies a lot. I have a story about squeezing his balls and just being like, hey, does this hurt? I pushed that with him. You know, I would bite him and then maybe be like, would you still love me if I bit you but made you bleed? And he was like, I don't know. Maybe you should try, you know? <laughs> like, so we'd push the envelope. And I think I bit him once and he bled. I definitely think that I was just kinky in general. I think it was just part of my own sexuality. And so I had a very safe place to explore that with. And I talked to him about everything because he was also my best friend. So I think it was so easy for us to just be like, hey, let's try this, or what's this, or what's that, and not have any issues. For Lucy, being a dominatrix is centered around control and power. But it's also been an avenue for her to finally find that acceptance, of which her classmates in high school, her mom, and she herself had denied. 
Kevin was her first step into embracing her sexual identity. And as Mistress Sweetkill, Lucy has continued to evolve, taking ownership of her desires and shame and all the things she felt compelled to hide. I feel that things that I hid about myself, my sadism, shame, stuff like that, I am, is no longer there because I have people I can relate to. And helping people understand themselves, their sexuality, their own shame, being there for them and being this person that is a holder of secrets, as well as the person that people can reveal their truest self to, has really connected me in a lot of ways with myself. Lucy is a daughter, a sister, a Vietnamese-American woman, a mama to her pet bunny moose. There are many facets to her identity, and her sexuality is a part of that. She doesn't deny this part of her, she doesn't try to hide it, she just owns it. I'm not saying everyone needs to go out and get kinky sex toys or scour newspapers for wanted ads. No, the takeaway here is that the power that Lucy holds comes from being honest and loving to herself and the sexual part of her identity. And that she may have clients who prefer Asian doms doesn't change the fact that Lucy is doing this for herself. She is honest to herself and those around her about who she is and how part of that identity includes an embrace of her own sexuality. When I think about what Lucy has taught me about what kind of power we, as Asian American women, derive from embracing our sexuality, it is a complete sense of self. Self-worth, self-love, self-confidence, and self-ownership of our bodies and our sexuality. And a part of that ownership means getting to tell our stories to their very ends. In our next act, we hear how one writer has tasked herself with ensuring Asian American women get to do exactly that. Act two, happily ever after. My name is Mindy Hung. I am a writer and editor in New York City. I'm originally from Canada, and I also write romance as Ruby Lang. And it's usually about Asian women. So before we get into this story, I just want to say that I like many of you, have, or had, some preconceptions about romance novels and their writers. Now, I'm sure you've seen these paperbacks. They're usually found on racks at the drugstore with cover shots of hulky muscle men carrying women clad with white shoulderless frocks, occasionally with horses, and certainly with disheveled clothing. The genre is well known for the sex scenes. Things get hot and heavy about midway, and there are usually some bulging muscles and cries of satisfaction. This is what romance novels evoke in the popular imagination. And the last thing you probably think of is high literary merit. The people, mainly women, who write these paperbacks aren't likely readers of Hemingway or Bronte. So how do they end up as writers? How exactly does one fall into those rippling biceps? Or at least end up writing about them? I was at the library a lot. I was allowed to take out any books I wanted, and that was my main way of just shutting everything out. And I knew 
okay, there are some books which I definitely should hide, even though nobody pays attention. So, you know, I would take out Harlequins and I hid away the ones that were a little bit racier. They were my way of carving out my own space. Because she didn't really have one in her hometown of Winnipeg, Canada. When you grow up in an area that's mostly white and you're a person of color, you find the things that you can identify with in books, in media, because there's just almost no one else. And for me, it was definitely books that taught me a lot of the things that my parents couldn't or wouldn't. I think a place like Winnipeg lends itself to a degree of escapism. With snow that piles up past the roof of your car and winds bearing negative 22 Fahrenheit glacial chills, it's no surprise that Mindy spent much of her childhood buried in books at the library and at home. She read to escape the brutal landscape of white snow and white families, reminding her how she wasn't made for the space. But she also read to escape her own family. Her Taiwanese Christian parents bore a brand of conservatism that didn't sit well with Mindy, so she sought refuge elsewhere. But even escapism, even books, have their limits as to where they can bring us. And for Mindy, the borders of the space she carved out for herself were drawn by the very characters she so admired and aspired to be. Did reading those romance novels kind of inspire a sexual revolution for you? Inevitably, a lot of these books were about people who did not look like me. There were redheads and blondes and brunettes, and they had this careless elegance about them. And here I was, sort of dowdy little Asian girl. And it did not occur to me that it was something that I could participate in at all. And it's so odd to just think like this very normal part of human existence is closed down to you. But that is how I felt. What Mindy is saying is that because she couldn't see herself, an Asian woman, in the stories where the heroines, the protagonists, were all beautiful, graceful white people, she didn't think that kind of fairy tale happily ever after was for her, that it was something she could have, that she deserved. So Mindy was excluded from even the imaginary escapes she had found. But for all that she couldn't see in her romantic future, Mindy made up for in her professional future. She was a smart and diligent student, and she could do anything she put her mind to, according to her parents. So I was an only child, and I was a girl, and for all intents and purposes, you know, I'd always been told, well, you can be smart, and you can do all sorts of things, and you can have any kind of job you want. But... When I was a little bit older, my cousins came to live with us, and they were boys. And one thing that I did notice that when they came to live with us, they were allowed to skip out on things. They didn't have to go to family functions. They didn't have to go to, like, parties that my parents had been invited to. And I asked why I couldn't stay at home alone, and my mom said, well, because you're a girl. And I was like, really? That is very interesting. Please elaborate. And she's like, well things could happen to you. And I said, what kinds of things? Because I was starting to get pretty mad at this point. And I don't think she actually even came out and said it. But basically, she was like, if somebody breaks into the house, I could get raped. And that was the worst possible thing, apparently. And it, it's a terrible, terrible thing. But she imagined this nightmare scenario for me. And she did not imagine it for my boy cousins. Even now, I get really mad at this. Because I always thought to myself, oh, I was free to do a lot of things. But at the same time, I wasn't. Of course, 
Much of this fear that Mindy's parents harbored for their only daughter was born out of their own experiences in Taiwan. It was occupied by the Japanese at the beginning of the 20th century. And then by the time World War II had ended, it was occupied by the Republican Chinese. And the Chinese were not great to the existing population of Taiwan. So my parents grew up with a lot of fear, which I didn't understand because they never talked about occupation and all this sort of stuff. But during the war, they were deprived of food. They were also intimidated and there was a, a purge. I can't even imagine what might have happened to women. So Mindy was both implicitly and explicitly taught by her parents that being a woman meant limitations, meant fear, meant the possibility of rape. Even through her one escape, her books, Mindy learned that being an Asian-American woman meant that she couldn't be the heroine, the protagonist, the character that gets a happily ever after. Instead, Mindy decided happy endings were for chumps. She left the romance novels at the library and focused on serious writing with serious, and of course, guaranteed tragic endings. Hemingway never indulged in happy endings, and neither would she. Eventually, Mindy moved to New York for her master's in English literature and really blossomed into a serious literati, black turtlenecks and Shakespeare in tow. I stopped reading fun stuff. You know, I read for class. And there was an idea that if you want to be a professional, I wanted to be a, a, an English professor. If I wanted to be a professional, I was going to have to read all my Shakespeare, and I did. And I was going to have to read poetry, and, and there was no room for popular books. And there was no room for fun reading. And when I did you know, have summer vacation or when I did read stuff for myself, I tried to read the kinds of things that I thought people would read. I read Anne Beattie and I read Raymond Carver and Hemingway, of course. So I tried to make myself something out of reading too. After graduation, Mindy became an editor and published her first novel, a serious one at that. In between, she got married and had a baby as well. And in all of that busyness, she stopped the one real constant in her life reading. I stopped reading for a really long time after I had my daughter. And I was still reading articles. I was reading magazines, but it was all like short. And I stopped reading stories, I think is the thing. I stopped reading fiction. And obviously, it is such a big part of my life. And I was alienated from it for a pretty long time. But then, in another attempt to escape and find reprieve, this time from a world of diapers and feeding schedules, Mindy found herself wading into the familiar territory of romance novels. And I just decided I just have to read something. And so I looked around a little bit and I said, I am going to read romance. And I picked up Loretta Chase's Lord of Scoundrels and I loved it. I read it all the time. I read it over and over. When I had free moments, when the baby was napping, this was kind of like my life raft. And, and I thought to myself, uh, at a certain point, there are other books in this genre. And I tried to justify it to myself because I still had that whole like snobbiness about it. So I needed an academic justification, even though I was not an academic, um, <laughs> for reading them. So I read these books and they were not what I expected, even though I told myself, oh, I have a very open mind. I had 
shit. I'm not open minded about them at all. You know, I like I, I went in and I wanted to have theories and I wanted to have notions and I wanted to be able to categorize them. But basically, I just really liked reading them. And so our black turtleneck wearing serious English lit graduate of NYU concedes. She stopped dismissing these romance novels and making excuses for the mini collection growing on her Kindle. Instead, she embraced romance novels as a type of book she deserved and began to write the kind of heroines and protagonists she had so wanted to see as an extension of herself as a reader. It was learning a new way of reading. It was learning what I liked again and redefining what I liked. And I changed a lot as I started learning it. And by the end of it, it was no longer like I need to justify this by being very intellectual about it. Since then, Mindy has published three romance novels, each with their own happy ending. In a romance, you always have to have a happy ever after, it's called. That term sometimes makes people think, oh, well, everybody's life will be roses and cupcakes for the rest of their life. But really, it means that the author has tried to give these people a beginning that they can build a future life. And the fact that you can have this kind of ending for marginalized people is really significant to me. When I was younger, I didn't think I could participate in sex. And I didn't think that I could be part of that kind of narrative. Because I didn't see that. Like when I did encounter Asian characters when I was growing up, it was usually like my Asianness is excluding me from happiness. And at the end of the book, I'm going to just stare off into the middle distance. When that's the only narrative available, then that's something that you start believing about yourself. It really means something to me to be able to see in these stories. Asian characters having lives that include love and sex and that they, at the end, have a future ahead of them. And so Mindy is creating heroines that look like us, characters that deserve and receive their happily ever afters in love and sex and, of course, sexuality in an attempt to change the narrative. Why is it important that Asian American women in particular embrace their sexuality? I think that we just haven't been seen as having any control over our lives in a lot of ways. And sexuality is a big part of it. And if we don't have our own stories, if we can't wrest the narrative away, then we really don't have anything. I mean, If you don't see Asian women as people, then you're going to take away their rights even more. And storytelling is really one of the ways that we see people as people. Romance novels are social novels. In the end, people end up together. And they end up having some sort of future. That's the happy ever after. And when I'm writing a book with Asian American characters getting together, that means I can see a future. If I've done my job, I have convinced readers that they have a future together. And that is actually a very intensely political vision when you think about that. If I can convince a reader that there are people who are going to build lives in society and 
they can believe it, then that is a small kind of conversion. Mindy Hung writes as Ruby Lang, author of several romance novels, including Clean Breaks, which is available now. She can be found at rubylangwrites.com. From using romance novels as an escape to a tool for political subversion, Mindy's Asian-American characters embrace their sexuality to drive home one message, that Asian-American women deserve happily ever afters too. So what happens after our Asian-American woman rides off into the sunset with her new beau? In our final act of this episode, we explore sexuality and the pregnant body. And as Valerie Francesco Manchavez, a first-generation Filipina-American, points out, I feel like sometimes sexuality is reserved for the non-pregnant body. I don't think people see mothers as sexual beings, that motherhood or mothering our sexual practices, our practices in pleasure, our practices in desire, our practices in feeling sexy and powerful. Pregnancy has and continues to redefine Valerie's relationship with her body, her ownership of it, and her sexuality. Act three, superhuman. Let me set the scene. I met Valerie at an evening panel discussion. And this next part I mentioned because it relates to our story. I remember thinking, wow, this woman looks amazing. She had paired her beautiful pregnancy glow with a tight fuchsia low-cut dress. And at 38 weeks out of 40, she managed to stand during her entire 20-minute presentation. No small feat with a growing human inside of her. A few days after the event, I reached out to Valerie, and she sent me a reply. Included in it was an apology for the delayed response, because actually, I'll have her tell it. I was giving a talk on a chapter of my book and feeling all kinds of pelvic floor pressure, just feeling uncomfortable. I even told the organizer, they they were looking at me, I was 38 weeks pregnant, and they're like, are you okay? I'm like, you know, I'm uncomfortable. But anyone who's 38 weeks is uncomfortable, okay? So I just thought that this was like a regular 38-week pressures. And so I went home and I told my partner, I was like, don't rush home. Get me a Chipotle burrito bowl. (laughs) Take your time. It's cool. I think I might be going into labor, but I might be in labor for a while. So it's cool. Literally, that event started at 5. We ended around 8. I gave birth like three hours later. What? So that's how I find myself sitting in Valerie's office, asking her about sexuality and motherhood, as she nurses her son, who is now six weeks young and looks exactly like a miniature senior citizen. As someone who's never been pregnant, I wanted to know what it felt like the first time around with her daughter and how pregnancy changed her relationship with her body. Just like maybe any first-time mom, you know, read all the books, had the app, was following what kind of fruit she might look like in utero. Like, is she a blueberry? (laughs) Is she a kiwi? Yeah, right? I know. (laughs) Does she look like a tangerine right now? You know, how big is she? With Aya, it just felt like 
I was not getting sick and it's not like I'm a sickly person, but I felt like I didn't get a cold. I didn't feel any nausea. I just felt like superhuman. I felt like this person that had two hearts beating at the same time. And when I'd go out for a walk, I'd like have these extra spidey sense. Like, but I felt like, oh, wow, I'm using all my senses and feels really like good to be pregnant. I love being pregnant to this day. I mean, I've always had flubber right here. So having a purpose to that flubber felt like, yes, this is what my stomach is supposed to do. And so I think when I was feeling really good, I just felt like really unstoppable. I, I felt strong. I felt more focused. I mean, there were, of course, times where I was sleepy and tired, you know, because you're just like making an eyeball here and there. But at the same time, it felt purposeful. The naps felt like I need to do this because I need to generate a human being in my body. During her pregnancy, Valerie felt more comfortable in her body than ever before. She was invincible, like a superhuman. And Valerie exercised this new power and ownership over her body and how she presented herself. I chose all these, like, body-fitting clothes that I would never wear as a non-pregnant person, right? Then I carried my body around in a particular way. Like, you know, they say, don't shop for a new wardrobe for your pregnant body because you're only going to be in that for, like, 10 months. But for me, I was like, I'm going to go pick out the things that make me feel powerful, that make me feel noticeable. It felt really like me getting in touch with my own sexuality in that way and expressing it. People often think as a pregnant person, you're not a sexual being, but I think you quite are. You really are indeed like a sexual being, right? It's like the epitome of being a sexual being is having this marker on your body that says like that's what happened I had a lot of sex now I have this big baby bump it was a performing of the sexuality that that made me feel like oh awesome you know I don't have the highest self-esteem around my body before and when I was pregnant I just felt like really good about myself Valerie was taking on a new sexual identity and rest assured other people noticed it as well so you felt more sexually appealing? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like people also saw me as that, both men and women, in a platonic and a romantic way. I feel like women would look at me and be like, go girl, like you're looking tight, you're looking, you're looking fresh, go girl, you know, like, I love that dress. But I think both men and women also, I would get those lingering looks. Like I said, I, I chose clothes that were body fitting because I was proud of what I was doing in my body. And I think that was suggestive. But then Valerie gave birth. I had a 28-hour labor, unmedicated. It was very long. And I finally was so tired at the 26th hour, I decided to get an epidural and... An hour or so later, after that, started pushing because she was ready to come out. And she was what they call transverse. Her head was turned a different way, so she wasn't coming out in the optimal position. And so 
her heart rate started dropping. And so all of a sudden we had to do an emergency C-section in under two minutes. I was drugged, scrubbed, and dragged into the OR. And it literally felt like that, right? It literally felt like this moment of powerlessness when I was totally in control of my body from 26 hours of labor. And then all of a sudden, you know, this little girl wants to come out of me and, you know, the OBGYN is going to call it. Like, she's going to have a C-section right now. I was, like, crying every single day for, like, eight weeks. I didn't know why. I was looking at this baby feeling totally useless. I didn't have an easy, like, transition into breastfeeding. And so I felt really ineffective as a mother. I guess being pregnant allowed me to be powerful because I didn't really have to try. My body was doing the work. But when Aya came, I didn't know how to do it. It wasn't clear to me how to breastfeed on demand. I wasn't really sure about any of it, you know? And so I think that contributed to my feeling not so good about myself and not so good about my relationship with my daughter. So Valerie went from having this awesome feeling of total control over her body and her sexuality, like she had never experienced before to feeling completely lost. From the moment that the doctors decided she needed a C-section, to waking up without the child she'd been carrying for nine months in her body, she was confronted with a loss of control and postpartum depression. It felt confusing because at that time, felt like, oh, you should feel thankful or happy to have a healthy baby. But also... I was really confused because I didn't always feel happy and I didn't always feel effective. With Aya, waking up with her like outside of my body was really surreal. Because I was under a C-section, I felt really groggy. I can't even really remember the exact feeling of seeing her out of my body. It was more trying to regulate and recover from the surgery. So my mind and my body was trying to wrap my brain, my feelings around that. And so that's why there was this delay between me and bonding with Aya, because I was doing all this other work to, like, recover. Like, not being able to walk for 24 hours, you know, after having an epidural or having major painkillers in your body. It just literally, you're hella sleepy. It was like balancing out that, you know, recovery, but also making sure that I was attending to the needs of this new being in my life. It felt conflicting. It's been a couple of years since her first birth. And now that her second is a few weeks old, I wanted to know, how does Valerie navigate her post-pregnancy womanhood? And how does she define ownership over a body she now shares with two children? I think for me, what I've learned about my womanhood through my children is that number one, that the woman's body is this near perfect organism. Everything that my children need and need it in utero and in the fourth trimester, as they call it, like in the first three months of their lives is already in my body. It's amazing to know that like things change and shift in your body just when they need it. Every single day, when I'm breastfeeding my child, the milk actually changes. There's like 
this communication that happens between my baby's body in his saliva to like in my nipples, like cells and enzymes in there communicate to one another to form this thing to nourish him in the exact way that he needs it. That to me is like on some Octavia Butler shit. Like what? Your body talked to my body without words, right? It's amazing to me. I mean, that part really has taught me that being a woman has all of these secret superhero compartments. Like Superman ain't got nothing on me. You know what I mean? And with this new understanding of how her body serves not just her needs, but the changing needs of her children, Valerie has had to reassess what sexuality means and how she views herself as a sexual being. Your relationship with your body changes, right? Because when I was pregnant, I felt like my body was still mine. Even though I shared that body with a baby in utero, after I gave birth to both my kids, it really felt more like I was definitely sharing this body. These boobs are not mine. I do not control them. He does. Like, literally, when he's hungry, I can feel it in my breasts. Even if I'm not in the same room or same vicinity as him, I can feel my breasts feeling firm, which means somewhere out there, there is a baby that's looking for me. So my relationship with my body changed. And so that means my relationship with sexuality changed, too. Through her pre-pregnancy, pregnant, and post-pregnancy bodies, how she felt in each, how she went from insecure about her body to totally comfortable and sexually appealing, to now where she is learning to share her body, Valerie has redefined her sexuality time and time again. And ultimately, this tells her and us that there is no one definition. Just as we've seen in the three parts of this series, sexuality looks different when we're 10, 11, 12, and starting our periods, or when we transition, it looks different when we start touching ourselves or letting others touch us. It looks different when we declare ownership and assert control. It's all a conjuring, right? Sex and sexuality is all a conjuring. Like, it's something that you are a woman or me that we have to continue to evolve, right? Continuously evolving with our ideas of ourselves and our bodies and our sexuality. Diana here. In producing this series, I talked to a lot of Asian American women. Some of the women were candid, others were a little more shy. Some of the women I talked to had only ever had sex with one person. Others had had multiple partners. Some were still figuring out what sexuality means to them. And even others had discovered changes in their body that altered how they viewed themselves as sexual beings. But regardless of their sexual experiences, they all understood inherently that this was an important conversation, even if they had a hard time articulating why. So why? Why is it important that we, as Asian American women, embrace our sexuality? What do we stand to gain by doing so? 
When I started thinking about the series and putting it together, I thought this was about changing the narrative. I wanted to do a piece that really focused on the positive and allowed us to celebrate our sexuality. I wanted to find the hilarity in high school period spills where you end up having to wear your hoodie tied at your hips for the rest of the day. I wanted to laugh collectively at the ridiculousness of first attempts and how you didn't know where things were supposed to go and he couldn't keep it up and then there was farting. I wanted to share stories of Asian American women who have found the promised land of sexual ownership, liberation, and freedom. Through it all, I wanted to push back on the existing narrative of shame and stigma, of tired stereotypes with submissive China dolls and fantasy vixens, with our own real stories of self-love and empowerment. But as I went through all these interviews of me asking that very question, what do we stand to gain? What I realized is that sexuality is political, and anything that is political is about power. What we stand to gain by embracing our sexuality as Asian American women is power. And this power extends far beyond the bedroom. When we reject that our periods are dirty or unclean, when we stop believing in purity and virginity as markers of value to a woman's body, when we cease to slut shame and instead start prioritizing our own pleasure, we fundamentally undermine the principles of a society where men hold power and women do not. By asserting control of our periods, our pussies, and our ever-changing sexuality, we, as Asian American women, stand to gain power in the form of autonomy, confidence, and freedom in the racialized, gendered, and sexualized society we live in. And if we can do that, if we can assert our sexuality, we get to see and value our bodies in a totally new way. We get to dole out our own happiness and pleasure. We get to define what a woman's sexuality is and who it is for. Like Lucy and Mindy and Valerie, like Abir and Joyce, Melissa and Priyanka, like Lertana and Jenna, Vicky and Lynette, take ownership of whatever you think your sexual identity is. Don't be afraid of your own sexuality. It's okay to be a virgin. It's okay to self-soothe with your showerhead. It's okay to be unsure. And it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay not to want to have sex. It's okay to have an appetite. And it's okay to want things but it's not okay to ever forget that sexuality is as political as it is powerful. I am strong. This is Sample Space. I'm Diana Wong, and this is the end of season two. Let us know what you thought on Twitter at samplespacepod or email to info at hearmedia.com and send us what you want to hear in season three. Also make sure to share this three-part series with your Asian American lady friends, partners, sisters, and cousins. If you haven't already, make sure to like Sample Space on Facebook and reshare our post about this three-part series to enter our giveaway for one of two jam-packed gift baskets worth more than $100 each. They are filled with goodies from the lovely woman at Lunapads, makers of reusable cotton pads, and the Diva Cup. Their fans are so crazy about the Diva Cup, they'll even sing about it. Diva Las Vegas. That was Caitlin, who will be using the special code NEWMEDIA at the checkout for 15% off all her lunapad.com purchases, just like you can. Recognition, thanks, and gratitude go to Larkana Chong, Lucy Sweetkill, Mindy Hung, Valerie Francesco Menchavez, Zed Mead at the Center for Research and Education on Sexuality at San Francisco State University, Kyling Che, Allison Lee, Marielle Magdebe, and Johnson Fung. 
Music credit goes to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech, Bruno Mars, Three Doors Down, and Helen Reddy. Subscribe to Sample Space on iTunes or your podcast app of choice so that you don't miss season three. <laughs>